Revelation 6, verse 1, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with a sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. This is God's word. Let's pray together. As we've sung, Lord, now we ask again, speak to us, Lord. Open your word to us that we might see all that you have for us. Instruct us, build us up, help us, Lord. Feed us with your word today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, at chapter 6, we come to the part of Revelation where, well, this is the part I think most people think of. Right? Seals, trumpets, bowls, beasts, dragons, numbers upon numbers. This is where some of you either dread or some of you are really excited, and I pretty much know who's who by the looks on your faces right now. Uh, I'm, I'm kidding. Uh, the book of Revelation can be overwhelming. There's a lot of imagery in the book of Revelation. It can seem hard to understand. And while I have tried to avoid allowing this sermon series to become an academic lecture, I don't want that uh, to be the case. There's a place for that, uh, but I just don't feel like this is the place for it. But it is necessary for us to take a minute and consider something that may seem a little more academic, but is important for us to understand, and that is how different Christians come at this book. What I mean by that is how different believers interpret the book of Revelation. And so I want us today briefly to look at the four main perspectives. Before I do that, however, I want to reiterate that this is not a reason to harm relationships. The four views, this is an in-house discussion, okay? This is not a reason, this is not a separation of believers from unbelievers. There are many people who love God, who have a high view of His Word, who may have a different view from you. And let me just say, your view may change. My view changed. Um, It it may, and that's okay. That's what God's Word does. It changes us. And so it's it's okay. So don't get too too zeroed in on a viewpoint that you want to uh, go to fists on this. Now, uh, among these four views, uh, there's lots of variety. And I'm going to speak briefly and very generally. So I'm going to try and hit these so that we have uh, enough understanding to be able to refer back to these terms uh, with some grasp of what they mean. Uh, But if you would like more information, there's a handout on the book table today. 
uh, from a book. Uh, it's, it's just a brief section of that that goes into more depth. And it's, I'm going to refer to that throughout, uh, throughout my sermon today, so I won't cite it every time I use it. The book is a four views book. If you're familiar with those, it presents the four views. It tries to do so charitably. It's not trying to convince you of one particular view, so it's presenting both the pros and the cons. That's again available to you on the book table. If they're gone, just let me know and I can email you a PDF of it. Um, this is a, 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 a point at which we practice being loving and kind to one another, and so may we all be open to what the scriptures teach us. So the four main perspectives are the historicist view, the preterist view, the futurist view, and the idealist or spiritual view. Don't worry about how to pronounce them, spell them. They're on the handout. So you can just grab that and see all that there. I want to begin with the historicist view. This viewpoint understands the book of Revelation as portraying history from, well, we're celebrating Pentecost today, really. The ascension and Pentecost, the return of Christ, the beginning of the church, up until the end of history. And so that is how they see the book of Revelation, is covering that entire period. And within that period, they see the teachings in the book of Revelation as pointing to specific events that uh, have occurred in history or will occur. For example, the breaking of the seven seals, what we're at at this point, these we're beginning this and the trumpets that follow, uh, is said to be that of the barbarian invasions that devastated the Western Roman Empire. You know, when the Western or the, when the Roman Empire was brought down, it was brought down by attacks from uh, many different countries from various directions, and so they see this as the ones coming from the East, the Huns. Uh, later in chapter nine, the scorpion locust creature that comes out of the bottomless pit. They understand this as to be the Arabs who came up from North Africa. And then the Turks who came in are represented with the, the horses that we see with the tails that are, uh, uh, you know, serpents' tails, flamethrower, they spit flames out of their mouths. That's what they see that imagery pointing to. And ultimately, the beast in chapter 13 represents the Roman papacy. If you are familiar with the writings of the Reformers, you know that many of the Reformers held this view. Martin Luther is known to have said that the whore of Babylon in Revelation 17 represented the Roman Catholic Church. And so I'm going to try and present uh, kind of a pro and a con or a, a positive and a critique of each of the views, so I'm not picking on any of them. Just know that at the outset. I think one of the positives of this view is that it has a high view of God's providence in history. It sees that God is working out his plan in history. That's a very positive thing. I think it falls short in that it tends to focus, the, its interpreters tend to focus the events in Revelation at their own period in history. So, for example, the Reformers interpreted all of those things as things that were happening in and around them or up to their point in history, and yet another 500 years have passed. And this becomes a problem with other views as well, but this is a problem here with the futurist view. It also has tended to focus its emphasis on the Western church. It has, in a sense, neglected what God is doing in his church in faraway places, other parts of the world. And so that would be a weakness of the historicist view. The second view is the preterist view. And while the, the historicist view sees Revelation covering really all of church history, the preterist view understands Revelation as being mostly fulfilled in the time of John's writing. And the ultimate fulfillment of the book of Revelation occurring with the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. 
So it has a much smaller footprint in terms of history. So one example from this perspective is that Babylon the Great would represent Israel, which has denied uh, her Messiah and joined with the Roman Empire to persecute Christians. This viewpoint was predominant in the early church as far as the writings that we have. That seems to be the case. This was the predominant view. It certainly would have been relevant for John's readers in their time. But one of the weaknesses is that what does it mean for us today? How is this relevant for us? I don't think that's a reason to discard the preterist view. It's just a a fair critique of it. Um, I mean, for example, we don't discard the Old Testament prophecies that have been fulfilled. We still... uh, get encouragement and direction and so forth from them, even though they're fulfilled. One of the bigger challenges with the Preterist view is that it necessitates an earlier date in its writing. So as you remember, when we talked about the date of Revelation, some hold an earlier date, some hold a later date. The Preterist view wouldn't allow for the later date in the 90s because, of course, the destruction of the temple occurred in the 70 AD. And so that would be one of the challenges that the, the Preterist has to overcome. The third view is the futurist view, and I would argue, this is anecdotal, but I would argue this is the most common and the most popular view among American evangelicals, okay? That doesn't make it the correct view. I hope you know that the most common and popular view, it may be, but it doesn't make it. I hope that you know that, that just because something's popular or common, as we've already seen, one view was popular and common in the early church, the, second, or the first view was popular in the time of the Reformation, um, and so they can't all be correct, right, because there are differences among them. But this would be the one that would be most common and certainly influenced the church the most in our own day. The futurist understands the first three chapters of the book of Revelation as, as dealing with the churches in Asia, the New Testament church. That's the message for the New Testament church. And then beginning in chapter 4 and the rest of the book pertains to the end times. And so where the first view sees all of church history, the second view sees just a small window of church history at John's time, this kind of does um, not the opposite, but it's different. It does the very, very beginning and the very end. And so it leaves kind of the middle Empty. The approach of the futurist, and I do want to distinguish that there are two main camps of futurists that are different. Uh, there are dispensational futurists, and then there would be those who would align with a reformed view uh, of futurism. And so they're, they're, they're really different, even though they have some of the same characteristics and use the same title. I'm going to focus mainly on the dispensational approach because that would be the one view that would not be consistent with a Reformed and covenantal viewpoint. And because it's been so influential, I'm not beating up on it or coming down on it. It may be the position that you take. I'm coming at it because it is distinct or different from what we would hold in our own church. And so it's been so influential that I think it's worth pointing that out. It takes the approach of looking at history from, or church history from uh, the seven churches. It it then focuses on the end. It attempts to take everything literally, so all the symbols in Revelation are to be understood literally. And this presents one of the first problems that we see with this view, because some of the symbols are clearly not literal symbols. Uh, For example, when we looked into the throne room in heaven, we saw uh, Jesus as what? A lamb. Is Jesus a lamb? No. His glorified body, we know, 
Uh, we saw it uh, at his ascension. We saw it through scripture at his ascension, uh, right? And the, the, the disciples saw he still had the wounds in his hands. He wasn't a lamb, but it was a symbol that John sees in a vision that's clearly meant to mean Jesus. Like, we know that. And I think even dispensationalists would recognize that. So that becomes the problem then is how do you pick and choose what are to be literal and what are to be symbolic. It's not a reason to dismiss it. It's just a fair critique of it. Uh, Steve Gregg, who has written the book from which I pulled this handout that's in the back, I want to quote him on this. He says, in one sense, there's a strong psychological appeal to the futurist approach. Many of us would like to have a divinely inspired channel to insight into the future. Futurists believe that to reveal the future in in advance is in keeping with God's character and methods throughout Scripture, and sometimes see in this book just such a tool of prediction. Confidence in this approach is enhanced whenever a commentator is able to match current political events with his interpretation of Revelation. For example, when an Associated Press article dated April 28, 1964, reported that the Red Chinese Army had an estimated 200 million armed and organized militiamen, the very number of the invaders mentioned in Revelation 9.16. Some futurists, mostly of the dispensational camp, are very fond of finding this kind of evidence in support of their view of Revelation. In fact, every generation of futuristic interpreters for the last 150 years or longer have been able to find in Revelation a description of their own times. And so that's, that's really where the problem is. And you may have heard this where someone's come out and said that this character or this nation is this symbol in the book of Revelation. And then time and history passes and it doesn't turn out to be so. So that's, that's part of the challenge there. Now, not all futurists are dispensational. I've mentioned that here before. Uh, but the ones who have been most influential are like Hal Lindsey, the late great planet Earth. I know, um, I would say probably if I asked for hands, probably half of us in this room have either read or been influenced by that book. Uh, the Left Behind series for the younger crowd. Uh, that came out later. Many have been influenced by that, those books and those movies uh, and similar preaching. This has really affected the church in America in terms of its understanding. So I just want to mention briefly a distinction then between the dispensational approach of the futurist view and the reform view is that the dispensationalist view holds to a secret rapture of the church. The reform view would not take that view or hold that view as well as a distinction, a clear distinction between the people of God as revealed in in the nation of Israel and the people of God in his church. And so that's one of the distinctions. Again, I want to mention Steve Gregg's quote from his book. If we go along with dispensational interpreters in finding the rapture of the church in Revelation 4.1, and that's where they kind of lock in uh, the, the explanation of it, he said, then the book becomes largely irrelevant, not only to the original readers, but also to all Christians of any age. This is because the church will be in heaven before the majority of the prophecies begin to unfold with this view, neither experiencing nor witnessing their fulfillment. This leaves it far from obvious why Christians should take any interest in such events or why God wished to reveal them. So we'll deal more with this view, but I just want to give you a little bit of a snapshot on that. That's the futurist view. The last one is the spiritual or the idealist view. Over history, all of the views have become broader than they were in the beginning. That's true so often, right? People will say, I'm a historicist, but then they begin to bring in some preterist elements or some futuristic elements, and so it kind of becomes modified. And so we talk about someone being something, and they're really kind of a version of that something. That's, that's okay. That, that happens, and we may do the same thing. I just want to mention that that's, that is an option. Uh, but this, among all of the views, is probably the most broad. 
rather than seeing the symbols necessarily pointing to specific historical events, the idealist understands that many of the symbols are pointing to trends in church history. And in keeping with prophecy, they understand that uh, uh, something can be fulfilled in a general sense in the immediate time and still have a literal ultimate fulfillment. Talk more about that in a minute. But for example, the battles in Revelation can be seen as referring to spiritual warfare, to the persecution of Christians, or to natural warfare in general throughout history. Things that every church, every believer in every age of the church, every believer in every cultural context would experience. They would, they would understand that. Uh, the beast from the sea can be seen as the satanically inspired political opposition to the church in any age. Again, something that ebbs and flows. I mean, if, if you go back in our history, there's certainly been times where the church enjoyed much more freedom. We, we see on the horizon maybe days ahead when the church will fa- face greater persecution. Other believers around the world have experienced incredible persecution. And so this view would, would, would keep the book of Revelation very relevant to those believers, particularly those who have suffered the greatest persecution. When we come to the seals where we are now or the trumpets that are coming, they depict some reality of famine, war, natural disaster. That, of course, has occurred in every age on a recurring basis, all a part of the sovereign outworking of God's purpose in history. Again, I want to say that there is room among the idealists for the general approach to the understanding that these prophecies also can have a specific fulfillment in the end, but we don't know. And I want to remind us of that, no matter what view you take, that that's what, that's, that's what it comes to. If, if you have someone who, who comes to you with the book of Revelation and says, this means this, and this means this, and this means that, and I know everything that's coming, be wary of that approach. That's very, very concerning. Because if we look backwards, and I hope this is helpful to consider this, but if we look backwards at the prophecies concerning the Messiah, they make sense to us because we're on the other side of it. For example, every Christmas we read Micah 5.2, don't we? And we celebrate the fact that it was foretold that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, literally fulfilled in the birth in Bethlehem. But had we lived in Micah's day, would we have been able to nail that down? Would we have been sure of it? Possibly. Maybe some good students were. They figured that out. But what I mean by that is if you go back and you read Micah 5 or read all of the book of Micah, what you'll find is that there is a lot of imagery in that book. There are many things that are symbolic. There are some things that, like this, were fulfilled literally. There were some things that were fulfilled literally in Israel at that time. This was something that was way off in the distance. There were other things that you will see when you read Micah that were fulfilled symbolically in that immediate time of Israel, and other things that we see symbolically fulfilled either in the church now or possibly in the end end times. And so prophecy is always clear in hindsight, but it isn't so when we're looking forward. And so I'm just saying we have to come at this approach, whether you're, you fall into this camp, this is one of the weaknesses, because a lot of study and care has to be given not only to this view, but all of the views to determine what is and what isn't to be understood as literal or symbolic. We need great care, and of course we need great charity um, in this. I mentioned the benefit already, but I'll say it again. This view would remain relevant to the church throughout the ages and throughout all cultures. Okay, moving along, 
let me say this, that we will also come to the differences among the millennial views when we get to that portion of Revelation. I know those are terms that are often more uh, more well-known, uh, premillennialism, amillennialism, postmillennialism, we'll get to that, and how they connect with these interpretive views. We're talking today of the interpretive views. But I want to say this, don't feel pressure to fall into a category. Please don't feel any pressure to fall into a category, okay? I've heard compelling arguments throughout my life, and I know to many of you I'm still a wee lad, but I've heard compelling uh, arguments throughout my life, and I have been persuaded in times, like, oh, no, that, re- that really sounds closer to what is going Oh, no, wait, this one. It's okay. Don't let this become a weight to you. Don't let it become an albatross. Instead, let me encourage you to remember these four things. First, the book of Revelation was not written for us to have an exact view nailed down. I'll say that part again. The book of Revelation was not written for us to have an exact view nailed down, but was written that we might know and trust Christ. Revelation is a picture of the risen and reigning Christ, and when we come to the end of this study, that is what I want to be sure that you have seen. Jesus Christ high and lifted up. That's why I wanted to preach on Revelation. That's what I want us to be when we get to the end of the book of Revelation. Secondly, I want us to ensure that we have a high view of Scripture, that what we see here we know is the Word of God. It is written and it is true. And along with that, the third thing that I want us to strive to do is be consistent. Uh, and, And what I mean for us as a Reformed and confessional church, that we remain consistent to the confessionalism that we say we confess. And that is how Scripture has been systematized or, 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 or organized in what the Scriptures have revealed in the Westminster Confession. And so that we remain consistent in our hermeneutic of understanding the Bible, that we don't get wishy-washy on that. And if we do those three things, then the fourth one should be a natural outworking. And that is we remember what, if we have a high view of Scripture, if we're committed to the Confession, if we know that we're supposed to see Jesus high and lifted up, then the fourth thing is that we remember what Galatians 5 says. What does Galatians 5 tell us? That the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. That we remember the fruit of the Spirit and we don't uh, allow ourselves to be uncharitable toward other views. Okay, let's get to the text now. Uh, I know that's a record opening, but I felt like we needed to do that. Let's begin looking in verse 1 of chapter 6. The text opens with John pointing us to what he is focused on. What is John focused on? He is focused on the Lamb. Now, I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, verse 1 tells us. Even though the Lamb is mentioned only here, this one time in verse 1, Jesus is the central figure of what is happening. He is the one opening the seven seals. He is the one ordering and reigning over the events that are to unfold because, as we saw in chapters 4 and 5, the Lamb is worthy. He was the only one who was worthy to open the seals. And yet, the seals seem to point to things that are troublesome, if not evil. People are suffering, dying. If you look down in verse 8, by the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. 
And so we might ask the question, how can Jesus not only allow, but be sending out these horsemen to carry out such atrocities? How is this possible? Well, the answer is found in the holiness of God. These acts are judgment against those who reject God. Because God is holy, he cannot tolerate sin, he must carry out judgment. This is consistent with his character. And one of the ways that he accomplishes this is by direct acts, what we see there in those lists. Let's be careful, however, that we don't feel the, not the need, but the, uh, <laughs> the temptation to take on the mind of God with these things and suggest that this atrocity is a judgment for this person or this country or that act. We have to be very careful not to do that. Unless God reveals that, we have to be careful that we don't know the mind of God on those things. So direct acts are one of the ways that he shows his judgment. Another way, though, are through indirect acts. And what I mean by this is what Paul explains to us in Romans 1. There, Paul explains that God turns sinners over to their own desires. I want to encourage you, we don't have time to read it now, but look at Romans 1 this afternoon or later this week. Romans 1 can help you understand better what is being revealed here in Revelation 6. But for now, let me mention just one, uh, one, two verses, one small part. Verse 18 of, of, of chapter 1, you probably know this well. For the wrath of God is revealed, it's better read, being revealed, it's ongoing. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So Paul is telling us here that the wrath of God is being revealed. Okay, it's not just being stored up and saved for the end times. It's being revealed now. That's consistent with what we see in Revelation 6. It's not just saved for the end. It's being revealed now. Verse 24, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And so what we see here is that part of the judgment of God is turning us as sinners loose in our own sin, so that the sin itself becomes the judgment. The consequences of our sin become the judgment. And Paul gives us a list there, and this is why I want you to read Romans 1 sometime this week. Look at the list. It's a list long enough that it includes every one of us. <laughs> There's a list of sins there that, that nails all of us to the wall. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so while the wrath of God is being revealed already, it continues to unfold in history. This is what we see in Revelation 6. So while he is building his kingdom, why the gospel is going forward among all nations, the effects of sin remain around us. The consequences are there. We keep stumbling and tr- believers aren't, aren't guarded against these things. The, 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 the direct things, the national disasters, the, the wars and all of that. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I prayed for our brothers and sisters in Israel this morning. I've gotten several emails. I've got another one this morning from friends there. And it's, they're, they're right in the middle of it. They're, they're not kept Separate from that, some of their places are being hit. That's true of believers. We're right in the middle of these things that are judgment. It's true of warfare. It's true of political oppression. It's true of famine. It's true of disease. We all know that from this past year. Or even attacks from the animal kingdom. But hear this. These judgments, while intended for unbelievers, 
are not just for unbelievers. These atrocities are for redeemed sinners. What do I mean by that? They're not judgments against us because Christ has taken all of our wrath, but they are designed to refine our faith, to allow us to grow in Christ's likeness. Let me just mention that the, an example from the Old Testament. There are two visions in the Old Testament that are very similar to the vision that we see in Re, uh, Revelation 6. One is in Ezekiel 14, the other is in the book of Zechariah in chapters 1 and 6. We see four horses in both of those images. Uh, what I want to point out, though, is that God explains that these judgments are coming through these four horses or horsemen in the Old Testament, and they are designed to uh, judge his enemies. But he also goes on to explain that they're designed to refine the faith of his people. And the same is true in the church of Jesus. His people still suffer alongside unbelievers during war, during natural disasters, as well as Again, from the past year, pestilence, (laughs) believers and unbelievers have suffered alike. And while these outworkings of a sinful world are hard, they are designed to point the unbeliever to his need of salvation and point the believer to his ultimate hope in Christ. So for us, rather than worrying, not that we never worry, we we do. It's worry, it's part of living, (laughs) but we don't dwell there. We don't wallow in it, but instead we allow the suffering and the hardships to point us to Christ, to know him and to trust him more. Nothing can separate us from him. In our suffering, nothing can alter our ultimate destiny. Even in death, we're not harmed, for then we are safely home with him forever. So, remembering then, as I mentioned when we went through chapters 4 and 5, this is a foundation. Remember I said that? This is a foundation. This vision of the throne room is a foundation as we come to the bowls and the trumpets and the seals and all of the atrocities that we're going to see. We've got to remember chapters 4 and 5, that the Lamb who was slain, He has made us His own, and He will not lose even one who belongs to Him. All right, the four horsemen. The first one, I'm going to move quickly because I know we're out of time. The first horse is white. Uh, Its rider has a bow and a crown, and it says in verse 2, he came out conquering and to conquer. Uh, Three common views on this. The first would be that this is Christ because he is the one who conquers. We've already seen this in the book of Revelation. Uh, We see the color white, and we associate that with righteousness. Uh, We see the crown that he's wearing. However, with further study, we realize that those aren't necessarily uh, images of Christ. Those are strong arguments for a Christ figure, but the Christ figure doesn't line up with the other three horsemen. It doesn't make sense that the first one is Christ and then the other three are who? I mean, not to mention the fact that Christ is the one, the Lamb is the one who is sending out the horsemen. Now, again, it's a vision, so it's possible that he could send out and then he could be in the vision in both parts, but it just doesn't seem to line up. But when we see further and we look, we realize that the word for crown here is not the same word used for crown, uh, the crowns on Christ. We see that it's a plural word. It's a different word for crown. Uh, So there's some some inconsistencies there with the, the picture of Christ in the end. But also there is a unity between these first four seals and the first four trumpets that we'll see when we get to chapter 8. In other words, it's, it's another parallel. 
uh, or parallelism. You remember from our study in Genesis, parallelisms are a common teaching or literary mechanisms that are used in Hebrew writing, and this is an example of this. Chapters 5, one, verse 1 to chapter 8, verse 1 is one section. It parallels chap, beginning in chapter 8, verse 2 on to 11, 19. And so that brings uh, the, uh, the, uh, us to at least understand that there should be a unity then among the four seals and the four trumpets. Another suggestion is that this is the Antichrist. In other words, that this one who is conquering is a counterfeit. And that is certainly true. When we come to look at the Antichrist, we're going to see that he is a counterfeit. He, 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 he claims to be somebody that he's not. He tries to imitate Christ, and he doesn't, of course, succeed. We understand Satan's on a leash, but he's still wreaking havoc, isn't he? And so it could make sense that this is the Antichrist, but again, it doesn't agree with the other three horses. What roles do they have, and why wouldn't the Antichrist want to be doing what they're doing, the bloodshed, the, the sickness, the death, the pestilence, all that kind of thing? And so it doesn't seem to be consistent. This leads us to a third view, which is that the, four, the, the, the first horseman re- represents military conquest in general or political expansion through force what we have seen throughout history. From Genghis Khan to the Greek and the Roman empires, Napoleon, the Crusades, even imperialism, the modern-day Islamic caliphate, we see that history shows us there is a continual striving for power. There's nothing new under the sun. And this has happened over and over again. And if we understand the first horseman to represent that, then the other three horsemen, what they represent is is much uh, clearer or more consistent, I would argue, uh, in in that they represent the the bloodshed and the, uh, the financial instability and ultimately death. The second horseman rides a red horse, and we recognize right away uh, that it's, it's, it's a different kind of red, not the kind of red that you may have seen on a horse, that uh, rust red that we might see uh, on some horses. This is a vision. It's a bright red. It's to, designed to point us to the bloodshed that he brings. Why? Because he is given or allowed to remove peace. This is, again, one of those indirect ways that God judges us. Uh, Why isn't the world worse than it is only by God's grace? If God removed his protective uh, providence from us at any time, we would just go at it. (laughs) Uh, And that's what happens when there is one who is sent that is allowed to remove peace. There is bloodshed. And so this would not include just war, but it would include also things like civil war or murder or gang warfare or organized crime, but especially the persecution of believers who have lost their lives. This is, a, I think, a clear indicator of martyrdom. Now, don't take my word for it. Read ahead in Revelation 6, because as we get there next week in verses 9 and following, you'll see why I think so much of this is pointing to martyrdom, because it's mentioned there. But just take my word for it now. Uh, the third horseman rides a black horse. He carries scales, and we hear a voice come from, an out, uh, come from uh, in between the throne announcing this incredible inflation. Now, Economic hardship for most of us, let's be honest, is at worst uncomfortable. When we suffer economically, now we don't like it, but it's at worst uncomfortable. However, most of the world, nearly 50% of the world, lives on roughly less than $5 a day. With this kind of inflation, it is devastation. 
And if we look back, that's today, and subsistence has risen considerably. And if you go back 100 years in history, many more would have lived on less, so that this kind of inflation would have been not just devastating, it could have been life or death. What inflation is it? Well, a quart of wheat is the amount of wheat that you needed to feed one adult per day. And it costs a denarius, which is a daily wage for the common worker. So basically, you go out and work and you can afford to feed one person. So you, you see the problem there. This is incredibly devastating to the, the poor or to the lower classes. And yet the wealthy seem to, um, to be spared because the wine and the oil is not to be touched. Now, if you think this is a lesson on economics, it's not. <laughs> it's pointing to something. And again, when we get to verses 9 and following and we see the martyrdom and the persecution of believers, you'll understand why this is here, I think. This is pointing to the suffering that believers have incurred throughout the ages, particularly when they stand for Christ. You remember in the seven letters to the churches, the letter to Pergamum in particular, the trade guilds that required people to participate in sinful acts. And John wrote them and said, "Don't." well, Jesus, John wrote it, Jesus spoke to the church and said, you're not to participate in these acts. And so when they removed themselves from the trade guilds, what happened? They lost their income, they lost their jobs, and they suffered the financial loss, and they knew impoverishment. That's what I think this is, this is pointing to. These aren't just random things. I hope you're seeing that, right? These aren't just random things that are happening through history. We're, be, we're seeing what is happening ultimately alongside of what God is doing through His church. That even those who suffer bloodshed, even those who suffer martyrdom, even those who suffer losing, if you lose your job because of a stand for Christ, that the, the, the Lamb who is worthy is still reigning. He still has you. And you'll be carried safely true. This is true, safely home rather. This is true in times of war, in times of pestilence, in times of economic hardship. But this is especially true as we face death. And that's the first or the fourth horseman. He rides a pale horse. Now the Greek word here is actually chloros, where we get the word chlorine. So if you envision this pale horse, it's this sickly green pale color. It is death. He is given a name, the writer is. He's the only one who's named. He is named death and he is followed by Hades. And authority is given to take the lives of a fourth of the world's population by the sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts. Now, no specific event is mentioned here. So while it could be a specific event, it isn't necessarily a specific event. It could be equally uh, this, this, what has happened throughout history. We certainly know that many have died. By these means, in fact, we often see the means kind of joined together. For example, what happens after war in many countries, but famine, uh, disease comes in, and so often these, th- these things come together. Well, there's a lot more that we could look into this passage. I know that's very, very brief. We're going to come back to it. I'm going to refer back to it next week when we get to verse 9. Here's what's important to remember, that the Lamb has announced that suffering is coming. And we know this. I mean, Jesus told us this, right? Jesus is the Lamb, but when in his earthly ministry in the Gospels, he said, I've suffered. Why do you think you're not going to suffer? I'm paraphrasing there. You're going to suffer. And here, the risen and reigning Lamb is sending out this suffering. But we need to remember that it's he who does this, the Lamb who is worthy, that he reigns over all these matters so that the suffering is not wasted. So where one act may be a judgment for unbelievers, it can at the same time 
be a sanctifying work for the children of God. And isn't that our testimony? Isn't that the the testimony we've heard from others? What is devastating to an unbeliever? The loss of a loved one? The loss of income? A natural disaster? Believers come through these things not without pain and suffering, but they're able to come out with a renewed and strengthened faith and a testimony of what God has done in the midst of this. In other words, my point is, He is not wasting your hardship. He is not wasting the weight that you are bearing right now. He is not ignorant of it or indifferent to it. He not only knows and cares, He is with you in it. He's with you to the end, and He will bring you safely home. There is no clear example of the injustices uh, or the great injustice than at the cross of Christ. The unjust suffering of the Lamb served to accomplish the righting of all of our wrongs. The greatest injustice ever to occur, the slaying of the sinless Lamb of God, brought our souls from death to life delivering us from the wrath that should have been ours completely. And so if His suffering can accomplish our salvation, then He can make our suffering transform us into His image. He can make it count. It may not make sense. I will argue it doesn't make sense. When you're in the midst of suffering, it doesn't make sense. You want to bang the walls. You want to bang your head against the wall. You want to scream, and you may. It doesn't make sense. But Revelation is telling us, hold on, hold on, hold on. The risen Lamb reigns. And so we have to run back to the cross in our suffering. We have to run back to the cross in our hardships. We have to run to the cross in the injustices we face. But not only for believers, for unbelievers, the cross is the only place that you have to run as well. If you think the difficulties we are currently facing in our world are disheartening, you do not want to face a holy God on your own accord or your own record in the end. Our God is a consuming fire. He is perfectly just. He is absolutely holy. And the wrath of God that is being revealed now is only a warning of judgment to come. And it will pale in comparison to the final judgment. Don't attempt to stand on your own record because no one can stand. None of us. There is none righteous. No, not one. You need a Savior. And the only name under heaven whereby one can be saved is the name of Jesus. Today is the day of salvation. Come to Him, trust in Him, and be saved from the wrath to come. In Him is freedom and relief from your sorrows. In Him is cleansing from the stain and the shame of sin. In Him is hope and strength for your weary soul. Come now and believe. For believers, let me circle back, and then I'll be done. I promise. I want to say it to you. I want to say it to myself. The sufferings we face are not random or by chance, and they're not meaningless. There is purpose in suffering, but there's also promise in suffering. 1 Peter 5.10, listen closely to this. 1 Peter 5.10, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, 
who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. I remember in May of 2008, getting the news that uh, Stephen Curtis Chapman, a uh, musician I've referred to before, his music's had an impact in my life, uh, that they, the family had, had, had suffered an incredible loss. His five-year-old daughter was struck and killed by the vehicle that his 17-year-old son was pulling out in his driveway. I mean, what an incredible, incredible pile upon pile of grief. I remember praying for that family. I, remember, I, I think I cried. I know that that's probably not hard to believe since I cried a couple weeks ago, but I, I, I did. It was just incredibly just sad. How do you comfort your son? How do you grieve yourself? How do you comfort you know, your wife and your other kids? And uh, this, you know, How do you do that? The words from Matt Redmond's song, Blessed Be Your Name, comes from the book of Job. In an article it's written, it, it, th- these words kept him going. It was the first song that Chapman sang the day that she died when he wasn't sure that he'd ever be able to sing again. Blessed be your name. When the sun's shining down on me, when the world's all as it should be, blessed be your name. On the road marked with suffering, though there's pain in the offering, blessed be your name. You give and take away. You give and take away. My heart will choose to say, Lord, blessed be your name. And as Chapman says, he, he sang this song. He says, it wasn't a song. It was a cry. It was a scream. It was a prayer. But I found an amazing comfort and peace that surpasses all understanding. And so may we today then cling to the hope of the promise that after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Let's pray. God, you are our only hope. You're our only hope. We confess that the sufferings that we have endured and I know that some are enduring in this moment, don't make sense. They don't. We can't understand. We grieve. We hurt. We long for a relief or a redemption. Lord, may we cling to this promise that after a little while, after we have suffered a little while, You, the God of all grace, Yourself, will bring us home. We'll make everything all right. We'll wipe away every tear. be no more suffering and no more hurting. And then we'll know. But we know only in part now, then we'll know in full. So we walk by faith, not by sight. Lord, we can't see right now. Would you strengthen our faith? to know that you're good, that you're good, that you're good, and that you reign over all things. Help us to know that as we go today in Jesus' name. Amen.